Good morning, folks. I was real scared. You know, last Sunday I was here and uh, nearly everyone I spoke to said, Graham, I must say I'm sorry I won't be there next Sunday. I'm going away for the week. And of course, most folk do that when they know I'm speaking. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's marvellous to see so many of you out here this morning. Friends, uh, today is Sunday the 30th of December, 2007. On Tuesday, we'll have the 1st of January, 2008. And as we come to the end of another year and we stand on the threshold of this new year of 2008, there's a scripture that the Lord has laid on my heart through this week that I want to be the theme of what we talk about this morning. It's a reference that's made over in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. And it's made uh, about one of the tribes of Israel, one of the people of God in, in their tribal capacity known as Issachar. And listen to what it says during a crucial point of history in the nation of Israel. Here is what they said or said about them. They were men who had understanding of the times in which they lived to know what Israel ought to do. The Living Bible has it paraphrased this way, all these men understood the temper of the times in which they lived and they knew the best course for Israel to take. Now, as we look at this in the scriptures, we soon get the gist of what this is saying. These people who made up part of the family of God in the Old Testament, it says they understood the trends of the times in which they were living. They, they had an ability to look at what was happening around about them and happening to them and to come to conclusions about where they were being taken or where they could go if they followed these trends. But in order to do what pleased God, it says, but they knew the best course to take to handle these trends. Now, I think that's an, a marvellous New Year verse of Scripture. Since concluding my ministry here three years ago, I've moved around churches and Christian circles quite a bit here and overseas. And I have to say that I'm becoming increasingly disturbed about some of the trends in our society and in our churches and how few people, including Christians, really understand what is going on. Some brush it off as saying, well, of course, Graham, we're living in the last days. Well, that's all been said before. And I think in many respects it's just a cop-out. Dr. Josh McDowell, probably the most prolific speaker to university students in the world, he said just recently, the church today is facing the most difficult time of its 2,000 years of history. Do you realise that? He's not the only one that has said that. So in order to help put a peg or two on a statement like that, let me just touch on a few trends that affect us as a church and individually as professing Christians. 
First of all, we are now living in a pluralistic society. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that we're living in a society with a plurality of religions and belief systems which we are being encouraged to tolerate and in many cases actually accept. One of the trends in our society is to hear even church people saying, well, of course, Graham, there's good in all religions. We must learn to live together and, we, and accept what others believe. Now, there's an element of truth in that. But it really robs Christianity and the gospel, the Christian gospel, of its uniqueness and its life-changing dynamic. This is destroying, this attitude of saying, well, it's good in all religions, is, is, is destroying the cutting edge of the Christian witness and leaving us open to ridicule in our day. And if you have any doubt about that, just read the newspapers or listen to talkback radio and listen to the opinions and the statements of the man of the world. The next trend that I want to draw your attention to is postmodernism. It's a trend that has followed the modernism and liberalism that emptied many churches in the middle of the last century in the Western world. You see, this movement robbed the Bible of its divine inspiration and it robbed the Bible of its divine authority for many, many people. This, uh, this movement exalted man's reason. It now said, you know, we don't really need a divine person to have given us a book like this. Why, we can reason these things ourselves. And there were certain people who led this movement and they exalted man's reason as a criteria for truth. Soon coloured the preaching of many pastors and theological colleges. Now, that's modernism. But postmodernism, which is a, a trend of today, now current in our world, it goes further. And it says, you know, we really cannot know anymore what the Bible is really teaching. We used to accept this, we used to accept that, we used to accept that, but now we really cannot accept what the Bible is teaching. We no longer can know for sure what it is really saying. In other words, it's a celebration of ignorance. Truth is no longer absolute. So what I think about the Bible uh, and what it is saying on a certain subject may be the very opposite to what another person may say, but both would say today, well, you know, you, you, you're as right as I am. I mean, what does it matter? That is dangerous. That is terrible. In answer to denying the clarity of the Scriptures, Jesus said, if anyone will do what I say, he will know that I've come from God. It's the doing of God's Word. Not saying, well, look, I'm not aware whether, whether that means that anymore. We've kind of come of age. We've grown up. We're living in the 21st century now. We don't accept things like we did even last century. That's postmodernism. And our churches are full of it. And just look at the effect that this is having. It's brought several trends. The first one that I draw your attention to is that everybody goes to heaven today, irrespective of belief or creed. 
I've taken scores of funerals in the last two or three years and I've got into trouble in some cases if I would dare to share the gospel. Salvation through the cross of Christ is being ignored at the graveside of many people. The fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, that's no longer accepted by the vast majority. Did you know that? Well, it's happening all around us. And to take an opposite view doesn't feel right anymore for a lot of people. For most people, it will incur your indignation if you talk about there being two destinies for those who pass away. What about marriage? Another trend. A few days ago, our daily newspaper had an article on the fact that it is common now for partners to live together before marriage if they ever marry at all. Of course, what they also went on to say, and this was a secular journalist writing this, uh, but uh, you see, one time we just accepted what the Bible said about marriage, but now we don't accept that anymore. You see, we've grown up, we've come of age. We, we can allow for some variation now. And so people just uh, get together, but do you know what they've found? That many of those relationships don't last, and the people who suffer the most are the women. And they find themselves getting to 30 years of age and 35 years of age and a man walks out on them and they're just left on a limb. In many cases, as the biological clock ticks away, they haven't got a partner. Oh, great stuff, isn't it? But this is what's happening all around us. Aligned with this matter of marriage, and we could say so many other things, but I just want to kind of guide you along about the trends that are happening today but aligned with this is the homosexual issue with the new pressure for gay marriages. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. And it is so special as in God's sight to reflect something of the relationship between Christ and the church. Did you hear our state attorney general the day after elected to office? said he would be introducing legislation this year for gay marriages in Victoria. Oh yeah, it's on the way. It's on the way. That leads me to a third trend. And that's a new trend that I sense as I move around. The trend of the feel-good gospel. The feel-good gospel. We once talked about the Christ-centered gospel the Christ-empowered gospel, the dynamic of God that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes in Christ. But now it's the feel-good gospel. My Bible says that to disobey the gospel is to face the judgment of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But that's now open to question. The real value of the gospel today is not the cross and atonement and justification, but whether or not I feel good about myself. Whether I've overcome certain emotional setbacks and so on. Do you know that sin, the word sin, has been deleted from many a pulpit? It might offend people. Well, you know, unless we're offended 
will never discover the richness and the joy of the forgiveness that Christ offers through the cross. I believe this is in many ways linked with the emerging church, which is another new term, and the seeker-sensitive services encouraged by one or two large influential churches who, by the way, are beginning to doubt that it was the right way to go. This encourages the church to gain the attention and the accolades of the world by dropping down to their level and to their standards. And what it has done is to water down the life-changing gospel to make it palatable to unbelievers. Now, my dear friends, that has never worked in the history of the church and it never will. If you fell down a hole 30 feet deep, 10 metres deep, what would you sooner? Me get down in the hole there and be in a mess with you and try and lift you up on my shoulders and get you a little way toward the top? Or would you sooner I stayed up top from a position of help and power and authority and be able to lower a rope or get help to you and bring you out of that situation? And this is what the church can't see today. What's it doing for us? Another trend that has come out of postmodernism, I believe, has led to the alarming use of alcohol. A man sat in this church five years ago getting over a hangover. I didn't know about it. He's told me since. Incidentally, you don't know who he is, so don't try to guess. He's not even in this state. But only a few weeks ago I stayed with him and he told me this. And then he wanted me to come to his church and to preach there about this problem. The church. He said, Graham, I had an alcoholic father, I had an alcoholic brother and an alcoholic sister. And I had been an alcoholic. And he said, I'd given my life to Jesus. But he said, they told me it was still okay to drink. And he said, I was here one Sunday morning getting over a hangover. He said, I felt terrible. And he said, you had one of your little outbursts that morning on alcohol. <laughs> he said, I determined on the spot I would never touch it again. And he hasn't for five years. He said, I can't get over how clear my mind is. A month ago, I started collecting from the daily newspaper, just out of curiosity, comments by non-journalists on alcohol. And every day, there is material in our papers condemning the use of alcohol. It's not wowsers condemning it. It's the, it's the worldly. And do you know what, what uh, uh, even unbelieving professionals say? We are producing thousands of brain-damaged young people as a result of binge drinking. That's what it's doing for us. One other trend, the diminishing respect for human life. Have you noticed that it's more important today to save an animal, to save a cat or a kitten or something like that than to save a human being? We can slaughter thousands and thousands in this country by abortion, but move heaven and earth to save a kitten that gets up on a tree. Where are our values going? Abortion is increase, increasing. Safe sex is not really 
uh, uh, lessening unwanted pregnancies? Do you know that the, the fellow responsible for the largest number of abortions of any doctor in the United States, Dr. Nathan Bernardson, has recently been converted from atheism. And he was converted when he watched an abortion under, um, what's that process? Help me, dear. Ultrasound. When he watched an abortion under ultrasound and he had it being filmed and he produced a film that absolutely terrorized him and led almost to suicide and he called the film The Silent Scream which has been taken over by the pro-life people. Dr. Bernardson is not even practicing medicine now but he was responsible in one of his clinics alone for 60,000 abortions in New York. Look, we could go on and on, but as we face the new year, what is it that will make the right kind of difference for the Christian and for our churches? Where are these trends are, 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 are around about in the world? Let's tell you, they're just as real in the church. And so judgment has to begin at the house of God. Well, what's going to give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to minister in our day and generation like we long for him to do? What can help us as individuals who profess to follow Christ to stay true and firm for Christ with these trends? To use the words of Scripture, what's the best course to take, like the men of Issachar, to handle these problems. I believe that a massive shift in our thinking and attitude would arise if we would each give to the Lord Jesus Christ his rightful place in our hearts, in our lives, in our businesses, in our homes, in our personal life, and honour his word afresh. Now come with me to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Just before I read this, what were some of the trends of the day in which Paul wrote these words to an outpost of the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire? What was going on? What were some of the trends? Well, let me tell you. The power curve of the mighty Roman Empire was moving downwards. It had gone past its peak and it was on the way down now. People were faced with a multiplicity of religions and religious beliefs, of which many, many just regarded Christianity as another one. And you just think of that. That's our, that's our country today. And it was into that atmosphere came the gospel of Christ. Multiple marriages, increasing divorce. Do you know there is a, a record of one woman who had 19 husbands in those days? Or others too. But increasing divorce, fractured families, unruly kids, disintegration of the home and family was everywhere in the Roman Empire. And then orgies and alcohol were the fun pastimes of the majority of people. Human life was no longer sacred. Just throw them out in the arenas to the lines. Burn them alive. Let people cheer as they watch them being tortured to death. Human beings. 
These were the trends. And this was the climate when Paul wrote these words. Now listen, this is what he said. He didn't say now we're going to have a seeker-sensitive service and we're going to lower all our standards. We're not going to use language that might offend the people that come in. We're going to be very, very careful about in case they might even hear the gospel. Now listen to what he said. He first of all presents the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and... And... That means you were created for Christ. I was created for Christ. Let's go on. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the preeminence. So that he might have the supremacy. So that he might have first place. Now this scripture represents for us one of the most clear and powerful descriptions of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these few verses here, he's presented as the cosmic creator. He created all things. The universal Lord. He's the firstborn of all creation. The almighty God, the image of the invisible God. The ecclesiastical head of the church. He's the head of the body and the only saviour of the world. Oh, Paul, that might offend a few people. So what? Should we be worried about truth offending people? Now, if this is true of the living Lord Jesus, what place should we give to him in our lives that will honour him? This unique person of the universe, this is the greatest person that has ever walked this earth. What place do we give to him in our lives? Well, Paul gives it to us in this compelling conclusion. If this is true of Christ, and it is true, then in all things we should give him the preeminence. That in all things he should have first place. Question. Is this the place you and I give to the Lord Jesus Christ in the year 2007 and as we approach 2008? Or do we just acknowledge him as our saviour? We're saved from hell with a promise of a place in heaven one day. And to fail to give Jesus his rightful place in our lives and, and his word, its rightful place in our behaviour, is to produce a weak, anemic church and lukewarm Christians. This compelling conclusion about our risen, living, resurrected Lord Jesus that stated here that in all things he should have the preeminence, whatever be the trends that are going on out there, the answer is for you and I as individuals, for us as a church, to honour the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and to give him the preeminence in all things. But as we take that term, the response that comes from people can be put into four categories. And let me kind of wind this up as I give you these four. As we consider the place Jesus should have, why every one of these four categories could be represented in this congregation this morning. And the first one I draw your attention to is there are those here of whom it could be said 
Jesus Christ is not yet present in your life. Now this would be the simplest description of a person who's not a Christian. There's a lot of confusion around today. If you're born into a Muslim family, you're a Muslim. If you're born into a Jewish family, you're a Jew. But if you're born in Australia, according to the Australian government, according to thousands and thousands of people, you're a Christian. That's not true. You're only a Christian if you're born spiritually into the family of God by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Without God and without hope is how the Bible describes those in whose lives Jesus is not yet present. I mean, you might be a fine, respected citizen in this city. You might be a loving father. You might be a wonderful mother. You might be a son or daughter of whom the family is proud. But the truth as you sit here this morning is that Jesus Christ does not live in you. You could be a member of the church. You could seldom go near any church. You might be here this morning as a visitor and that's wonderful to have you here. But the truth is this, that Jesus doesn't live in you. You see, it's possible to be religious without having reality. It's possible to have churchianity without Christianity. It's possible to have a profession of faith without the possession of the living Christ. Listen to this test the Scriptures clearly spell out to determine if one is a real Christian or not. As you have it in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. In the faith is another term for in Christ, to belong to Christ, that you're a real Christian. Examine yourselves. Why? Because there's too much at stake. So it says, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? The greatest proof that you belong to him, Christ in you. Well, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless... You're a fake, unless you fail to meet the test. And whatever wonderful things may be said about you, this morning, Jesus Christ is not present in your life. My dear friend, you're utterly lost spiritually. A few weeks ago, I sat in this church and I heard somebody here that morning preach on that, that, that haunting scripture out of the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me, said Jesus in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do wonderful works in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And he will say to them, I don't know you. I've never had a relationship with you. That's what knowing in the scriptures is all about. And at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be people who will plead their good works, their goodness, their ethics, everything that's, that's commendable by the world. And they'll say, surely, surely we'll get acceptance. And the Lord said, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never had a place for me in your hearts. But let's move on. The second category that this scripture suggests is that there are those in whose lives Jesus Christ is present. He is present. And as you reflect on the years that have passed, 
there probably flashes into your mind right now one night you sat in a meeting like this or you sat in some special evangelistic meeting and you heard the gospel of Christ and you felt the Lord speaking to your heart and it revved up a few beats and you thought, the Lord's speaking to me. I know, I know this is true. I know, I know I need Christ. And then when an opportunity was given to give your life to Christ, to, to write on that little card after the service or to, to come forward as some people do, You said, this is it. I need Christ. I need to give my life to him. I need his forgiveness. I need new spiritual life. I need to be born into the family of God. And you responded to give your life to Christ. You didn't know much, but you knew enough. You knew enough. You didn't understand much, but you understood enough to get started in the Christian life. And you could sing like that great old hymn that says, "'Tis done, the great transaction's done. I am my Lord's and he is mine." But you're stuck there, aren't you? Some of you. You're stuck between Calvary and Pentecost. You're like the Corinthians that Paul wrote to and he said, listen, you people, I came to you years ago and you trusted the Lord, but you're still little babies. And he said, the trouble is you're acting like unbelievers and nobody can even tell you're a Christian. Look it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 to 4. I chaired a meeting in Scott's Church, Collins Street, Melbourne, one night for the renowned preacher, Dr. Alan Redpath. And on that night, he gave his testimony, which I haven't time to elaborate on this morning. However, for certain reasons, in the accountancy firm that Alan Redpath worked for in Scotland, there was a, a fine Christian among the eight primary accountants on that firm. And these two, uh, the accountant fellow and the, uh, Alan Redpath rather and the Christian accountant were sent away on an assignment into Wales to audit the books of a factory and they had to stay in the same uh, room in a hotel. And it was through the witness of that Christian man that he helped Alan Redpath give his life to Christ. And then they were separated for some seven or eight years and they met up again in London And when this Christian man who had led Alan Redpath to Christ met him in London, he could see straight away that Alan Redpath hadn't gone on with the Lord. He was still stuck back there like the little kid that was always falling out of bed because he stayed too close to where he got in. And there are Christians like that. And this man could see that Alan Redpath had made little progress. Oh, he could say, I've made a decision, I've been baptised, but that was about it. And he said something to Alan Redpath that, that drove like an arrow into the mind of this fellow that Alan Redpath never, ever forgot. And I didn't either. He said, Alan... If you fail to grow spiritually, you may have a saved soul because Christ lives in you, but a wasted life because you don't go on with him to maturity. You may have a saved soul, but a wasted life. Those words burned into the mind of young Alan Redpath and he determined that would no longer be said about him And history 
reveals the result. A third possibility of the place to which we can give Christ in our lives is there are those that we may say He's not present in their lives. They've never come to Christ. There are those who have made a decision. They've kind of stepped over the line. They've just kind of got started, taken a few steps and then got stuck. But there are those who can improve immensely on that and say there are those in whose lives the Lord Jesus is prominent. He's prominent. The Lord Jesus means much to me this morning, Graham. That's the trouble. He doesn't mean everything to you. He just means much. And this is where we're getting to here with this particular description. You say, but I share most of my life with him. But that's where the problem lies. You see, there are still areas in your life over which you'll not let Jesus have control. Areas that you still haven't surrendered to him. And this brings unnecessary battles and struggles deep within your life which frustrate and cause confusion over the decisions and the boundaries and the standards we should have as Christians. There's a brilliant illustration about this in the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 11 and verse 22. Let me, let me read. This, these are the days when Joshua was with his armies conquering the land and taking possession at the obedience of God to, uh, to uh, uh, possess the land entirely. And the Lord said, go in and take all of the land. Get rid of all the enemies out of the land. Because he said, I am going to work out purposes in your life in this land that will be absolutely glorifying of my name and speak to the nations round about of the power and reality of Almighty God. Joshua started out well. Jericho, Southern, Southern uh, Crusade, the Northern Crusade, and so forth. Great stories. But then you read this. None of the Anakites, that's the Canaanites, were left in Israel's territory. Well, that's what God wanted, but wait on, there's a colon. But only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did any survive. Joshua became a bit careless. And he left three itchy, witchy little patches of the land. And he said, oh, look, we've, we've taken most of the land. We're, we're, we've been prominent in what the Lord wanted us to do. We mightn't have been totally what the Lord wanted us to do, but we've certainly been prominent about that. And he left these three small areas unconquered. Now you turn over the pages of God's walk, God's word rather, and walk through future years. First of all, a few decades down the track. The, 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 the uh, um, Philistines have overrun the people of God and brought them into captivity. And that was never to happen. Absolutely frustrated God's people. And God raised up a deliverer by the name of Samson to restore them in their walk with the Lord. But you know, as you read the book of Judges, that Samson was seduced and diverted from the will of God by an evil woman of the name of Delilah. Where did Delilah come from? Where did she come from? She came from Gaza. 
And if Joshua had dealt with Gaza, then there would have been a Delilah. But let's go on a little bit further into the book of 1 Samuel. And here Israel is reduced to a scared, trembling host of people who, who are subdued by the Philistines instead of the mighty army of the Lord going in and conquering in the name of the Lord. And they're absolutely scared stiff. And, 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 and the reason for that is there's a warrior that comes out of the Philistine tribe and, and he challenges these people and says, you're just a, a bunch of no-hopers. And the soldiers are scared. You remember little David went out and found this, couldn't understand it. And who was causing this problem? Goliath. Where did Goliath come from? Gath. Joshua, if you had taken care of Gath, there never would have been a Goliath. Let's go now over quite, quite maybe some centuries and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And daily, as Nehemiah worked away at building those walls, they were brought to terrible discouragement by the opposition that they got from some people outside the walls. Do you know who they were? The men of Ashdod. The men of Ashdod. Joshua, if you had only been serious and taken the Lord at his word and, and obeyed him completely and, and, uh, and allowed his word to be what guided you in, in, the, in, in the conquest of that land, then he said there never would have been a Gath, there never would have been a Gaza, there never would have been an Ashdod. I have counseled the most frustrated Christians over the years who have left unsurrendered areas of their lives and said, oh no, I've given most of my life to the Lord, but there's a few little itchy titchy bits. You watch out that one day they don't bring you completely undone. Many of you saw Jimmy Swaggart in tears there on the television saying, oh God, forgive me, a man who commanded the attention of millions any week in, 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 in television evangelism. And I know people who found Christ through the ministry of Jimmy Swaggart. But Jimmy Swaggart had an area in his life that he had never surrendered to the Lord, that he could hide away and keep away in the background. He gave the Lord prominence in his life, but not preeminence. And the week after he crashed, he stood before 5,000 people there in his church in America and he said, I want to tell you that I've been a victim of pornography since I was 11 years of age. I have never got victory over pornography. And it had absolutely brought him to a place of crashing in a heap in his 60s. You giving the Lord prominence in your life? Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. And that leads me to say that there are those, according to the scripture here, in whose lives the Lord Jesus Christ has the preeminence. Now listen. This is not referring to some kind of perfectionism because there is no perfection this side of heaven. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. And the Lord understands that. But it does mean this. 
as best I know how, on any given day, of any given month, of any given year, I am living my life seriously and completely for the Lord as best I know how. And you can't do any more than that. You'll keep on growing and developing and learning more and more what that surrender means. And just when you think you've got it all together, there'll come a challenge to surrender a little further. The Lord so wonderfully doesn't show us everything at first, otherwise we'd get a fright. But as long as we are surrendered to the Lord, we discover the richness of the life he has for us as we yield to him. Now this that I'm talking about, Christ having the preeminence, is not some exalted brand of Christianity. Let's get that straight. This is what the Lord intended for you and for me, without which we will succumb to the trends of the day that wean us away from Christ and wean us away from his grand purposes for each of us and for the church. And he's done a good job in some places. Without giving to Christ his rightful place in our hearts and lives, we'll never fulfill the purposes, the eternal purposes for which Christ saved us and called us to follow him. Friends, I've had a terrific burden about this message this morning. I want to preach it in every church I can get into because I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the church today. And as we face this new year, let me ask you as an individual, what place do you and I give to the Lord Jesus in our lives? Maybe today, after this service, you should go away somewhere maybe this afternoon and get alone. Get alone somewhere on your knees before God and you tell him, Lord, whatever the past has been, I can't have it back. But I want you to know that I want you to have the preeminence in all things in my life this new year. I want to take you at your word so that I'll know what I ought to do as I live in this world as a child of God. Tell me, has the Holy Spirit planted a desire, a resolve in your heart as we've looked at these scriptures and as you face this new year? I'm not just talking about some glib new year resolution. Because this kind of resolve for Christ to have the preeminence is one that needs to be renewed daily. Not annually, daily. And that we give to him the supremacy, the first place, the preeminence in our lives. And then we'll see the trends and we'll know what we ought to do. Let's bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat>
My dear friends, as our heads are bowed in prayer, I simply want to ask this, that if you have a resolve in your heart to say, this coming year, I want to give to the Lord Jesus the preeminence in my life as best I know how. I want to pray for you. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. But the Lord promises that the grace, if we will trust him to be able to go through. And as I place this challenge to you this morning, I'm raising my hand. And I'm asking this morning, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, how many others will join me this morning in this resolve and let me pray for you. You just lift your hand. Lord, I want you to have the preeminence in my life this coming year. Many of you. Our Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. And you know that it must thrill your great heart of love to see us respond to this challenge and to give to you your rightful place in our hearts and in our lives. And for these dear people who have raised hands or those who wanted to, we pray that they'll know your grace and goodness and ability to be able through this coming year to let you have the supremacy in all things, to let you have the preeminence, to let you have first place and for you to be able to work in and through our lives as individuals and as a church what you want to accomplish in this place. Hear us as we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.